Hello, and welcome to episode 114 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. In this episode, we have a review of Electra Assassin. Electra Assassin is an eight-issue limited, se- limited series by Epic Comics, an imprint of Marvel Comics, between August 1986 and March of 1987. Written by Frank Miller, illustrated by Bill Sienkiewicz. Letterer on the first seven issues is Jim Novak, and the letterer on the eighth and final issue is Gaspar Saldino. This is your spoiler alert for all these issues and all things Electra Assassin, so if you haven't read the comics, please pause the podcast and come back after you've read the comics. This is Matt, and I'm joined by my Constructing Comics co-host, Noah. Hey there, and this week we are joined for our special comic review of Electra Assassin by Jeremy Arambolo, who we just had on in episode 106. Uh, say hi to the folks, Jeremy. Hello. Cool. <laughs> All right, uh, Jeremy, as the special guest, we'll let you uh, give us uh, initial thoughts on, on this, this comic book series that we're going to break down here. Um, it was um, a little frustrating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I guess to say the least, because I, um, there are a lot of things about it that I thought were great. Like I really liked the audacity of it and the sort of go for broke nature of it. But I feel like, like it gets so close to getting a lot of things really great and then it just doesn't quite line up. And um, I don't know what it, like I stumbled up, I got lucky and got this like fancy kind of signed edition online. Wow. <laughs> and uh, it came with, um, uh, this intro by the editor and uh, Joe Duffy. And, um, you know, it seemed like she kind of just let them go nuts, and which is obvious when you read it because it just seems so all over the place. Because, like, even when you read, like, the Wikipedia description of the plot, that by itself seems nonsensical and crazy. Yeah. <laughs> just the summation of the g- g- general plot. And then when you get into it, it's just, it's hard it was hard for me to connect the words and the images, even though um, from all the indications, it seems like uh, Frank Miller and Bill Sienkiewicz were really working together, but it still seemed like, uh, like in theory, they were like of this hive mind trying to sort of adapt to what the other person was doing, but it didn't really come across to me uh, in practice, like in reading it, Uh, everything just seemed totally disjointed and, I don't know how much of that is uh, by design or like I've never done cocaine, but (laughs) (laughs) like, it seems like cocaine, the comic book, there's an energy about it that just seems really frantic and let's try this and throwing everything against the wall to see what sticks. And, you know, they're not even really consistent with certain things Mm -hmm. like, like the beast and all that. And yeah. I don't know. It, it, it was so frustrating because there's so many great things about it, but then as a whole, it just kind of leaves you confused for the whole thing, you know, even if you're able to get through it. And uh, it, it's just tough to see something that's so close to getting certain things really right. And then it just, um, I don't know, just kind of leaves you scratching your head, but not really in a great way for me. But I, yeah, what'd you guys think? <laughs> I kind no. of agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, do you have any more? Oh, I was just going to say, it, it felt like it was so good and like how each issue was sort of crafted and sort of how the whole series felt to me. So each issue would sort of capture my interest and keep my interest and it would get better as the issue would go along. 
and then it would come to the ending and you were hoping that maybe it would deliver on something or that it would mean something. But by the end, there would either be like this weird deus ex machina or some weird trippy explanation for something that was never explained earlier in the book. Like it felt like a Three Stooges short at the end of each issue where it was like, we don't know how to end this, so we're just going to end it, <laughs> you know? And that's sort of how the, the whole series felt too, because you get to the end, like the eighth issue, and you think you're building to something with the beast and you get to the end and it doesn't mean anything in the end, you know, like it basically like gives you a middle finger in the end of the book where it's like, Oh, you thought this was going to amount to something? No, that kind of thing. Like that's just sort of how the book feels to me. Yeah. Like the, the mind control element was a real kind of like, let's just do that. Cause yeah. we don't know what to do with these characters. So then, you know, they threw in this weird element, which wasn't ever really in, uh, Electra canon, you know, the whole mind control element. So that was super weird. And um, did the version you read, um, did it have um, before each issue like this sort of newspaper, little newspaper clip? All right. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> yes. It seemed like apologetic on their part where they're like, <laughs> we know this is insane. So let's just give you this like newspaper clipping of the basic plot so that you could understand just, yeah, the basic thing that's going on because otherwise you're like kind of in the wilderness. Yeah. If you're reading this month to month, you were screwed. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. But Matt, what, were, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I thought it was sort of like, uh, in like three parts. Like at first I was reading it and I was like, oh, this is going to be sort of like a political sort of like assassination plot. Then in the middle, I'm like, oh no, it's this other thing. And then the last thirds, I'm like, oh no, it's completely this, this other thing. And like, I've just sort of been taken on a ride through these various things that, uh, you know, never really panned out in the direction that I thought that, that they were going to go. So, um, yeah, I, I feel the disjointed nature of it as well. Um, I also feel like maybe um, the, the the character, the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent that's so confused is just sort of like a proxy for us, the reader. It was like <laughs> he's dazed and trying to put things together and he's in the story as well. So Garrett or like he's a bummer of a proxy, too, because yeah. yeah. I know he's supposed to not be this savory character to say the least, but, and it's also a product of its time, you know, it came out in what, like 86 or whatever. Yeah. So there's just like a liberal use of the word, uh, the F word. Yeah, that was, like that. that was, that was Racial terrible, slurs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was awful. And it's like, ugh, you yeah. know. What was interesting about this series, and it kind of draws parallel to sort of like who Frank Miller was at the time, what he became, you know? Mm -hmm. So like his Garrett feels like a character out of Sin City almost. Yeah. And then, but the thing is, is that like, if he was in Sin City and he was acting that way, by the end, he'd be dead. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> like there's always that like sort of in Sin City, like nothing goes unpunished, you know? Like mm -hmm. if, they're, if they're awful people, their lives are going to be awful. And whereas like Garrett is like the worst person in the whole wide world. But in the end gets to, spoiler alert, of course, he gets to be president of the United States. Yeah. Like, it's like, I don't know what that's <laughs> trying to say right there. Like, I just, I, I kept thinking, I'm like, this is going to be like a uh, double indemnity type story, you know, where Electra is sort of the femme fatale using him for something. Mm. And in the end, she's going to like, and you're like, we've been building up this like deep hatred for this character. And 
by the end, you're just like, oh, he, she's going to like rip his heart out or something like that. Well, like, it's funny you mentioned the Sin City connection because I, the, there's one scene in it. I don't know if it was one of the pages you pulled, but uh, it jumped out to me because it was the, the heart bed, heart-shaped bed. Yes, yes. And I was like, whoa, that's <laughs> literally the first scene of Sin City. But, yeah, there are a lot of scenes like that throughout the whole book that just are directly copied in Sin City later and even elements from the different books. Like, I mean, of course, Frank Miller is not a fan of the government. And that's basically what Sin City is all about. And, um, and, and what Dark Knight Returns is all about and what everything else is about. So it's, it's yeah, it's a, uh, there's a lot in this book that's definitely revisited later. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough to reconcile like my sort of precious childhood memories of the early Miller stuff with being an adult and kind of reconciling not even just who he is as a person which I very intentionally tried not to read too much about because I don't want to ruin a lot of the stuff from the past that I enjoy I mean I'm aware that he's done a lot of you know for lack of a better word like problematic stuff in recent years but and you know he said a lot of whack shit about like the occupy movement yeah it's just a huge bummer and i probably the less i read about that the better but um you know i think even if you only read his comics he's kind of a politically complicated person and i think you know reading it as an adult i think there are a lot of false equivalencies he tries to make in a lot of his stuff which bums me out, which I didn't know this as much as a kid, but reading it now, it's like, I don't know. Cause, cause since I read this, I kind of went this whole deep dive of other Frank Miller's. So like I kind of reread Ronin and stuff like that. And they're definitely reoccurring themes, whatever book he's working on for whatever company. And I was going to bring up Ronin actually, because Ronin I feel is a better version of this story mm. where it's got this weird uh, structure to it. Matt, have you read Ronin? I have. Yeah, so it's got like this weird structure to it and it's so trippy and it's like really surreal. But you get to a point in the story in that book and it all makes sense why it's that way. And then the rest of the book makes sense. Like it's like, oh yeah, that's why the book has been told this way. Whereas you get to the end of Electra and it's like, no, it was just how it was told. You know, like there's no reason, like, you know, maybe at the beginning there may be hinting towards the unreliable narrator with Electra because she's in an insane asylum. But as it goes, it's just like the whole story becomes manic and like disjointed and crazy. And then it gets to the end and it's still the same way. I'd just be really curious as to what the, um, the older drafts of the um, Electro Assassin was because they said in the intro that it was like rewritten like mm. numerous times. Really? As they went along. And I think Sienkiewicz also had a hand in the sort of um, story aspect of it because like, like, again, they were kind of working off each other and adapting as they went along. But uh, I wonder if it was a lot more... You have to imagine it was maybe a lot more straightforward. Because there's a cool story here. Like, there's a cool story from the beginning to the end. Like, even if it wasn't... Like, I mean, I think it's way more memorable as it is. Like, I wouldn't change it, anything, because it's, you know, it is what it is. Mm. But there is a very cool, like, deeply complicated, like, espionage ninja story in there somewhere. It's in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And he certainly can tell the, the, the classic Daredevil story. I mean, Born Again is, you know, maybe the, the, the best uh, Daredevil series. Yeah. 
and it's pretty straightforward, you know, uh, one man's revenge on, on another, but here he's just sort of going all over the place. I wonder if he felt with it being sort of out of the daredevil continuity, he was sort of free to, to, uh, to experiment and, you know, take a, maybe a nonlinear path with the, with the storytelling. I was trying to, yeah, because part of, I was trying to understand why I was so frustrated with it because it's not like I'm totally averse to things that are open-ended or obtuse, but so I thought that maybe a lot of my frustration stemmed from the origins being a superhero character. I tried to think that maybe if it wasn't Electra, if it was just some other character and this story was just completely independent of Marvel continuity, if I would still be as kind of annoyed with it or frustrated with it. And that's not really it. Because <laughs> no. I think of any other example that, uh, you know, where someone t- takes the superhero or the superhero context and does, it, does their own crazy personal or wild take on it, that probably works better. I, I think just from a purely craft standpoint, uh, there's so many things that kind of just miss the mark, like even when it gets close, but it's never just quite, it's never quite there. I don't know. So like so much of that, and it's not a short book, you know, it's like, no. a, well, it's like eight issues and there's so much dialogue. And honestly, I had to just skip a vast majority of the dialogue at a certain point because I was like, I'm not, <laughs> the story is not adding up. Like, and I would try to, I rarely do this with comics where I would just kind of flip back and try to reread and sort of give it another chance. But um, it's just so rambling. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like there's no incentive for me to really get into all those details. So there are parts of the book that are written with the dialogue boxes, basically to work with the composition of the images. Like there's that one section in issue five where they have the one government agent who's in charge of the sort of fail safe nuclear launch. And he has all those like rambling thoughts going on in his brain. And it's all like, it doesn't make any sense. Like it doesn't matter to anything that's going on. It's just to show his mental instability. So you can basically look at a panel, look at all the all the bubbles in it, and you can just sort of get like, okay, that's why. Like that kind of thing, like, like oh, he's going crazy. You don't have to read every single one of these to make sense. Like you just sort of get this cool visual mm-hmm. aspect of it. So that part of it I liked because then I was like, okay, I can skip over these panels because I know <laughs> this is just the same rambling stuff. Um, But one of the things I found most frustrating is that the book itself explains a lot of stuff like and it goes back over and it it retreads old ground. It it repeats sequences and things like that. And you'd think it would make more sense afterwards. But this book has a weird effect where it it makes you even more confused. Like it's it's just it's sort of like always recontextualizing itself as the book goes along. And it's yeah. yeah. Like we talked about before, it's very it's a very fluid book. Yeah, and, and there's a that combination is is um, tough to combine because there is the specificity of the text, but the art is so, I mean, it's gor- gorgeously so, like very yeah. open ended and, and abstract. I mean, that's Sienkiewicz's whole deal, you know, and and that stuff works great by itself, but it didn't work with me um, with whatever Frank Miller was writing. It's just it's such an uneasy combination. Yeah. I, and I feel like Frank Miller could go on sort of wild flights of fancies as a fancy as a writer, but, and, and have it work. I think 
for me, it works better when the art is where there's more of a clarity to his art, whether he's drawing his own stuff or even if he's working with an artist like um, on Give Me Liberty, Dave Gibbons, you know, you, you get super political and have just heavy text and heavy dialogue and, mo and inner monologues and, and, and do whatever insane thought comes to your head. But if it's, if it's, um, if it's depicted in a clear, like concise sort of way, it, it, it's easier to stomach for me. Whereas having these sort of insane rambling texts combined with Sienkiewicz's sort of washy, abstract um, depictions, it, 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 your brain wants to sort of do the work for the artwork, but then you're having this text that's just kind of like the, this hyper-specific, but totally rambling. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's it's tough. It's tough because, again, you know, like I said earlier, it, I, I think there's there's an audacity to it that is in theory pretty admirable, but in practice, it just doesn't really work for me. You know, and it's interesting because I have this conversation with my wife a lot, where you don't want to write a comic where the you know the dialogue in the balloons or in the captions is describing what the artist is clearly showing. You know, the show don't tell, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the show don't tell aspect of comics. But this is like next level, like show don't tell, where it's like, it's showing you com something completely different. Yeah, and like you said, telling you something completely different and they don't intersect. Like it's just, yeah, it's really weird. And uh, like I said, it recontextualizes itself constantly. It's sort of weird, yeah. And uh, it's almost like a... Um, it really reminds me of um, almost like a, a, a painting by um, Goya, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Like it's sort of that, like I almost find it to be the comic equivalent of that. Like where you look at it and you're sort of disturbed by the images. Mm -hmm. You don't know why. Like it's almost like in the craft that it's made. But that's sort of my analogy with this book. Well, there was one page that literally looked like, speaking of uh, painters, that just looked like a, a Gustav Klimt painting. Yes. It's, it's that image, I think, where she's like giving him auction or kissing him or whatever underwater, a carrot underwater. I think yeah. it's the last page of one of these. Yes. Thank you. Yep. This would be the, the last page of issue four. It's got those like Gustav Klimt bubbles. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's definitely, a, I don't think I would like turn people away from reading this book though. Like, I think you have to like, you know, it's not enough to like, uh, you know, douse your curiosity. Like you said, just by reading the Wikipedia page or something like that. Like it's something you got to experience, you know, if you want to experience it, like you really should <laughs> like, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a weird book, but you I mean, need there's definitely it. nothing like it to me. No. So that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So let's, uh, let's, let's think about the, the time period that this, this book was written in. It's uh, 1986. It's got to be, you know, the, the, the height of the, the, the Cold War. Um, what, what do you think about the, the sort of the, the, the threat of nuclear war and the, the political figures that we have here? Um, well, well, first of all, like it, it's, yeah. I think it's it's tough to do politics and especially in superhero comics. And um, every time I think of politics in comics or, or imaginary politics, my brain goes to like Masamune Shiro 
you know, who did like Appleseed and Ghost in the Shell and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And sometimes when comics create a like a complicated or nuanced political world, there's something about my brain that just totally turns off to that. Uh, but even with something like this, that's very much a product of its time and of sort of Cold War paranoia. And, you know, there's even a character in it that, like Frank Miller, oh, the, the thing that's weird about Frank Miller is that he, he, he could be very serious, but then have really silly, stupid shit. And, mm-hmm. and, to, and it totally is, is wires crossed constantly where he tries to do like the coolest kind of darkest or thing. And then he'll just have some really goofy kind of sophomore humor thrown in because that the Russian premiere in this or the Russian Jack off. Figure, yeah, it was, yeah. Know, like jack off. It's like, come on. Yeah, I know. It's like, <laughs> that's I, just... <laughs> I have, uh, like, I think, yeah, I was talking to Matt about this earlier. I was like, what are his politics? Like, I think he's a libertarian or something. Yeah, they, I heard that in an interview. Yeah, because, like, at least from reading this book, it's very clear. Because he definitely paints, like, it's sort of like, uh, like, meet the new boss, same as the old boss kind of logic, you know, in this book, where it's like, the old president is just as crazy as Kent. Like they're both almost drawn the same way. I mean, different, they do look different, but like the old president only has like one expression. And then like- Which Kent, apparently is Bill Sienkiewicz's face. Oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but, uh, even though they, they, everyone kept calling it prescient because this is before the uh, Bush one and quail years. And the way they depict Ken Wynn, he looks eerily like quail before quail yeah. was a yeah. public figure. So people were really freaked out by that including Sienkiewicz but um I don't know yeah I mean yeah he and that's sort of also where the false equivalencies come in again because like you know this can win as a character is only liberal because they say he's liberal even though he's secretly like this kind of he wants like the world to burn kind of thing so that word doesn't mean anything and then what he depicts how he depicts the other president, which is just kind of baldly, what, like Nixon-esque or Reagan-esque or whatever. And he's just this like kind of little paranoid man who has his finger on the, on the nuclear button, like literally. And, uh, and, and that's the thing that's so crazy is that uh, if we're talking about things that kind of get closer sort of um, tones that don't, or, or kind of clash together, there's so many elements that, that want to kind of be sort of vague and cool but then there, that's paired right along the sort of hit you over the head obvious shit. Mm-hmm. So that just never really works for me where it's like you can't sort of just hint at certain things visually or thematically and then bonk you over the head with really just obvious, you know, like nuclear button and, you know, and then they would have splash pages of the, the world, the earth just exploding. And... You know, it, it never knew what it wanted to say. You could say these big things, but then, yeah, I think you mentioned it, uh, you know, there wasn't really a payoff, or both of you mentioned kind of in different ways, or it, it, they, they hint at all these things, but they never quite, like, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't have a resolution to what it's saying or hinting at. Yeah, um, books like Dark Knight Returns, or even, like, so it's sort of weird that this book came out around the same time that, like, V for Vendetta... Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen all came out. And like Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen, V for Vendetta all have very clear like motivations, messages about like what is like they, they stay close to their themes and very consistent with their themes and how it applies to the political world. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, all of them are kind of against nuclear war, obviously, but like, you know. I've never, I've, I've had V for Vendetta on my shelf for literally years and I've never read it. I, I got to read it now. Um, I reread Dark Knight recently and yeah, because even some, something like that, it, it, yeah, it does what this does, just way better and clearer. Yeah. And um, even has those elements of, like, showing the media and how the media interprets the times and how it can be either, like, you know, a tool for, you know, mass hysteria or a tool, like, you know, for, you know. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting to see, like, sort of what, what was going on at the same time in comics and then this book. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's yeah. just... Yeah, because, because I, I, I think um, Frank Miller's worldview through his comics politically seemed to sort of paint caricatures of liberals as being like these kind of weak, you know, feeble, kind of like overly forgiving kind of people. And then, you know, the more conservative or Reagan, Republican or whatever, just, you know, these hawkish kind of dopey. I don't know, but and and then you know, it, the the main character, the protagonists, sometimes tend to be kind of in between that, where they have they sort of have this sort of superhero hawkish kind of strong willed but compassionate. So I guess that's who we're supposed to sort of align ourselves with. Yeah. But um, you know, and that's I guess where the libertarian aspect comes in because it's mm-hmm. sort of this. Hein Randian. It's very yeah, like I, I don't even want to get into all that. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's, it's like that's why we have to limit ourselves because if we could go on this rabbit trail yeah, ever trying headache. to figure out what Frank Miller's trying to say. Um Yeah. Yeah. Uh and um but like you know, like you're saying about like the the, the false equivalencies, um it's interesting that like he again like in this story there is a like a consistency that he could focus on like where all politicians do is lie like that kind of thing to get what they want Mm -hmm. so if at some point it had been revealed that ken wind never was a hippie or something like that you know like he was just playing that card in order to get into the white house to start nuclear war like if there was a better way of being like no the beast corrupts this guy that kind of thing or whatever it is like if it was ever fully described that like this guy's just a faceless like liar trying to get to power maybe that would have been better and maybe it would have made more sense where it's like again it kind of it makes sense where it's like you just hate politicians right you know that kind of thing like you hate people in the government uh and uh yeah i don't know it said like again like uh i think that there is a good story in there and maybe something consistent but like like the rest of the book it's very inconsistent yeah so um do you want to switch to to looking at the at the art as a storytelling uh aspect here um as you as you call up the slides um so we we, we've talked about sinkevich's use of different uh styles here but uh we we have a few examples here of uh some stuff um so uh so it's you know there's a lot of nine ten twelve page panels there's a lot of storytelling here which um is interesting because you know watchmen would have had that nine panel style um 
but uh, I'll let you guys talk a little bit about uh, what you see here. Um, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't, like, uh, the way it ends is curious to me because, you know, he's, he, the guy says, makes that remark about $2 whore and then she charges him $2. So, like, what is she saying about Yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't, like, it's kind of clever for the sake of trying to be clever, but I don't, what, what is that about? <laughs> I think it's I think it's more him being clever for the sake of being clever again like I just uh again he does it better in Sin City that's the thing it's like he just does this Frank Miller writes this stuff better and more consistently later on in his other work before he goes completely crazy and just writes this stuff yeah because uh, it's a lecture just being self-deprecating or something or or she's trying to be cheeky with that or and yeah then, uh, it like it's weird that the book the story opens with this weird almost alternate history of Electra. Mm -hmm. And then Electra as a character is just pretty much phased out for the rest of the book. Like you don't really she's just like this kind of walking ghost and you don't really ever get a, any more of a glimpse. She she's just kind of uh this catalyst for things that happen as opposed to an actual character that you give a shit about. There's this framing device with her that's given up after the second issue. And it's kind of like this page right here where she gets the last word in each issue. Like the mm -hmm. first issue ends with her getting the last word. Second issue ends with that great splash of her holding like the machine gun and everything. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I like that her getting the last word, but as it goes on, Garrett starts getting the last word more and more in the issues. Mm -hmm. And it kind of becomes less and less about Electra and more about his relationship to Electra. And Alexa next to me is waking up every time I say Electra. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I, I, I like the, you know, we're talking about clarity. I, I, I do like this just from a layout perspective. You know, I like how everything is even and compared to other parts of the book, it's definitely a uh, lot more sort of straightforward. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I like this sort of aspect to aspect nature of it. You know, mm -hmm. just cut, cuts back to the window and just do close-ups of each kind of gesture mm -hmm. uh, but yeah yeah it's got a very uh subjective viewpoint like you're looking through Electra's eyes and you you get the feeling and the atmosphere of the room I also love how detailed Sienkiewicz is in his artwork I love how this glass is sort of why I picked this page <laughs> is that it's photorealistic like this page right here this this panel you could like frame that in like you know a 18 by 24 like on your wall yeah and I, everyone he, would appreciate that yeah so Kevich is a genius straight up just his, yeah. his his um and, and who knows how fast he did this because yeah. yeah you almost take it's easy to take for granted pretty quickly because he's so consistently great with every page and panel that yeah you kind of he makes it look easy but I mean, all this stuff is amazing. And it's not even just, I mean, a lot of it he's, I, I would imagine he's using photo reference. And fun bit of trivia, I, could, I don't know if you guys Wikipedia this or like went down an internet rabbit hole about this afterwards, but when I was reading about it, um, apparently the comic artist Amanda Connor, who is, I guess, Sienkiewicz's assistant, really, uh, was the model for Elektra in the last few issues. Really, Amanda Connor. That's crazy. That's she's very cool. She's thanked at the end of the book from Sikevich, where she's like, where he's like, uh, 
thanks to Amanda for all the poses. <laughs> oh, dang. Yeah, she's she's huge in DC now because she basically gave like the modern comic voice to Harley Quinn. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, she was the one. I mean, she has a great art style too, like phenomenal yeah. art style. And she's got a, she just had a new DC Black book put out with Harley mm-hmm. Quinn. But like, she was the one, I think when the new 52 launched, there are like those select titles of that people like, mm-hmm. like universally like, and her Harley Quinn is one of those. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I always dug her, uh, her art style. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he's just Sinkevich is a is a genius, but that, that that's also what makes this so frustrating is that it looks so <laughs> good, but then as a comic, it like never quite adds up to me. But it, yeah. it, I would recommend it just solely. I mean, you know, it sounds crass to to say this, but I mean, even just for the art, like that's something a dumb person would say. I guess <laughs> like just read it for the art, but just look at the pretty pictures. Yeah, but for yeah. something like this, that's just so amazingly well painted and illustrated it just even just on that level it's kind of worth checking out yeah and i kind of like we talk about on this podcast about sort of the invisible lines leading your eye around mm-hmm. and um this page has a lot of really interesting ones the one that i really like is this sixth panel right here and there's no real like direct line pointing you down but it's more like following the liquid being poured hmm. into his mouth moves your eye down and then you know you sort of follow the form down mm-hmm. to this panel uh, can you guys see that or am i just yeah. crazy no that's very cool yeah because it's a diagonal like literally pointing to the dialogue box in that panel and then, yeah yeah it leads your eye naturally down and i like even I, I like panels that sort of like the movement of of an object moves your eye to the next one like this you know the cigarette being pulled from the box right here from left to right mm-hmm. uh yeah i really like that uh, one thing that's interesting man you brought this up at the beginning is that there were two different letterers on the the first seven issues and then there was one on the eighth issue yeah they switch editor they switch letters for the final issue yeah and i found that like the lettering quality on that last issue is like way like is is not as good as the other issues i don't know if you guys found that as well i didn't notice but i'm flipping through it right now and uh Hmm. like there are some panels like some dialogue boxes where like the lining um of the words are kind of weird like they're not uh like it seems like they weren't like they didn't like do a second pass at it or anything like that they just sort of went with the first one that worked yeah Um, it's maybe a little more haphazard yeah but i mean i I, this book is sort of hard to letter in general (laughs) Um, yeah and uh, there are pages and panels in several of the of the parts of the book that just sort of like you could tell the letter was like I don't know what to do here. <laughs> yeah, and it, I, I did like uh, you know because sometimes Sinkevich would himself do like crazy kind of sound effects or weird dialogue or inner monologue. Yeah, I love the collage letters of the beasts dialogue. Those yes. issues, those are great. Um, but yeah, moving on. Um, this one is sort of one of the more iconic pages from this series. Like, I think I, I see this one, like after, you know, like, you know, all the great spreads with Electra. like this is the one I see because of how well the beast is rendered right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm confused about because that's like one of the only times you see the beast, but then at the end of the book, he looks like this alien sort of yeah. Geiger-esque thing. So it's, I'm confused about that. 
Yeah, I think that's the that's the thesis statement of this whole review. And it's just I'm confused by that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also the but the one thing that's consistent is the stupid milk metaphor, which is in this panel right here. Like, what the hell does that mean? I don't know. I don't it's just like uh yeah. I, yeah, I don't understand the whole milk. I mean it's it's the milk of the beast they're saying, right? Yeah. But, but what does it mean? I don't know. Yeah. Ugh. Okay, well. but <laughs> okay. But I do like I love how real he gets again. Like, you know, with the lighting and anatomy, mm -hmm. panels like this, and then just how expressive he is with these characters right here. And yeah, like and com compositionally it's great. Yeah. Everything looks really awesome in this. And I love the I love how he I'm like I'm wondering how much of like, you know, there there are repeated panels where I think like he's Xeroxed several of them and then like pasted them onto the pages, especially in issue two where you have those sequences with introducing Garrett and there's just that one panel of him smoking. Mm -hmm. And that's clearly Xerox, but I wonder what like photo uh, effects he did on it. Like there's like this art also just sort of how he printed photos, which is interesting. And uh, like this panel right here kind of shows that like it looks like a photo that was exposed weirdly or, or like, you know, had something done to it um, while it was being developed. And that was taken from another page of thing, right? I think so. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Like yeah, there's a like chemical quality to the photos. Yeah. And this was one of the pages like where I said, where I, I thought the story was one thing and then, and I was like, Oh no, it's this totally different thing. This was one of the pages. So I'm like, Oh, this, this is where the story's going now. Um, but, uh, yeah. Well, the whole the whole thing with her father is very confusing too, because re like in the beginning of the book, they sort of hint that maybe she was sexually abused. Yeah, that, that is just kind of glossed over, which is like this really heavy thing that they don't even like. <laughs> it just seems really shitty to sort of introduce that element and then have it not mean anything really in the rest of the book. Which they do that all the time with characters' backstories. It's like every character has a moment like that, like. You know, Chastity never gets to get her justice, like on Garrett for like how he treated her and things mm -hmm. like that, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's weird. Uh, but this page is beautiful. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he draws smoke so well. What's amazing with this is that I think this is watercolor and acrylics. Is that mm. how he painted his stuff? I'm not sure. I think I know it's watercolor at least. And that's that's incredible unto itself um yeah, it's, looks amazing yeah it's it's got so much texture and again atmosphere it's really beautiful it, it the again I'm, I'm drawing a lot of metaphors here not a metaphors but analogies to other works of art uh this book feels almost like how blade runner or like brazil feels mm -hmm. you know like it's mm -hmm. got that rich like lived in atmosphere with this very surreal quality to it in the art style. Um, yeah. The thing I love about Sienkiewicz too is that he's able to achieve uh, a lot of these effects just with uh, pen and ink. Yeah. Like, I haven't read a lot of his uh, like New Mutants run, things like that, but I've seen enough um, pages of original artwork where it's kind of crazy how well he could bridge the two uh, approaches in terms of mm -hmm. painting and just pen and ink. I love, yeah. 
I, one of the one of his best things, and it's sort of interesting. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day about this series, and he was talking about how just Sinkevich wasn't his thing. And I was like, "What about when he inks people?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, I love that." You know, <laughs> like he's he's a, like he's one of the probably one of the best inkers out there as well. But he brings this he brings that expression with his inks as well. So he yeah. came on on the most recent Moon Knight run he brought he came on and he inked like the like a couple of like over the artists in the last issues and it looks amazing it's just yeah and he does those effects on their artwork and it's it works great on their pencils i gotta check that i mean the only time the only inks of that he did that come to mind or that i read back in the day was um when he inked over john buscema's art in wolverine wow the 80s which looks crazy especially because uh artists like Busima is so classic and that combination yeah. works amazingly well you know with the sort of the kind of classic approach of Busima in terms of layout and design and then just the the fancy kind of flashy flourishes of Sienkiewicz over that is it's a cool combo yeah him and Dennis Cowan Sienkiewicz and Dennis Cowan are like a dream pair oh wow yeah, like, I love Cowan too yeah and like it's funny that it's cool that he went back to Moon Knight because that's where he started. And when yeah. you read those early issues, you see that transition. It's insane because he started out just drawing like Neil Adams. And then within about yeah. like a dozen issues or something, he was just, is just his own other thing. What's interesting on the cartoonist kayfabe interview with him, he talks about how he was yeah definitely trying to draw like Neil Adams. And uh, the book wasn't getting good reviews because of that. Like he was sort of being called a hack and someone who was derivative because of his Neil Adams style. And he actually got away with a lot of stuff artistically that not a lot of other artists were able to do at Marvel because he became friends with Jim Shooter right off the bat. <laughs> so he was like, he, so it was interesting. They were trying to like egg him on like, cause that, that podcast video, you don't have to listen to it to know that they are like, <laughs> they really paint Jim Shooter out to be a villain in that podcast. And, um, and, but he was like, no, I like Jim. Jim liked me. It was great. And um, um, so like Sienkiewicz got away with a lot of stuff and it actually was sort of encouraged by Shooter to be like, okay, be a little more expressive with your stuff. Like sort of be more you on the pages on Moon Knight, you know, and like when, when Sienkiewicz sort of went more expressive, Shooter was a little less reluctant to print it. And uh, that's what that's sort of the evolution of his style went from there. I got to check out that interview. It's amazing. It's really great. I'm, I'm probably misquoting it terribly, but it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. All right. Now this page is awesome. Matt, you chose this one uh, too. So you want to lead off on the conversation with this one? Yeah. I mostly picked this one because I really, uh, the the way wind is depicted throughout this book, I thought was was unique, and it sort of gave us this sort of like this this guy is not presenting himself, you know, as everybody else is. Like, what what is the deal with this guy as as we're reading it? So this is one of the ways. There's just one of the reasons why I picked this panel or this page, and uh, you know, knowing that I was going to have you two guys on here, I wasn't sure how this was done. I was thinking, like, is his face, like, cut and, like, pasted, like, each time or with, like, slight variations and, and, and like that? So is, is that what, what's going on here? Uh, yeah, I'm almost positive. It's just, like, because, yeah, like I mentioned before, it's supposed, supposedly is um, Sienkiewicz's face. And, yeah, it just looks like he just had 
Xerox cutouts that he would just put, um, you just paste over over where the head's supposed to be. But it's it's jarring because, and for the most part, it's that one image of him with that sort of toothy grin. But mm-hmm. there are certain panels where he's just, it's just his face is just plain, which it's very jarring. And then and then towards the end of the book, his face, even though it's the same cutout, starts to have color in it. Yeah, and I guess that's maybe an indicator of him kind of showing his true colors. Or I forget if that if it's that or by that point he was already possessed by Garrett, which is that's just, what it is. Oh yeah. yeah. It's in the last issue is when his face starts to show color, but there'll be weird moments in the book where he'll be facing his back will be to the oh, audience. Right, yeah. And yeah. his head will be still on the back, like is smiling is, at you. It's very creepy. Like it, it's yeah. super, almost like horror movie esque. Because yeah, there's that spread yeah. of him like addressing like I think, you know, he wins the election by a landslide. So there's, there's that kind of like typical iconic politician photo of like their back to like this adoring throng it's that same image but then the ken Wynn face is just looking right at you and Mm -hmm. it's really creepy yeah Yeah. it is yeah and even we have a little bit of that here with the um bottom two right uh bottom right two panels like the head doesn't really like fit on it perfectly (laughs) and we were talking about how it's like uh, you know, cut and pasted there. It just makes you feel so uncomfortable when, when you, know, you look at it. It reminds me of um, South Park. That's what I was going to say. I was like, this is like, I have it in my notes section. Like, this is like South Park, this whole thing. It looks like... Yeah, um, like when they would have like Saddam Hussein in the yes. show. There's just like yeah. a photo of his head just bobbing up and down. Yeah, this definitely feels like a South Park episode. Um, the, but again, uh, the Keith Wynn with his... Uh, head backwards facing us is the like spread which is like the next to last spread uh the next to last two pages on issue seven that's like a double page spread isn't it yeah yeah that's a weird double page spread but again another missed opportunity in this book like again this book would be so cool and effective on so many levels if they had really embraced like the creepiness yeah there it is yeah the if they had embraced that creepiness and had him like morph into the beast, you know, like if he had, if this had been sort of a, if this that would had, actually make way more sense. <laughs> yeah. Like it would make way more sense. It would actually, and you wouldn't lose any of the effect either. Like you wouldn't lose the surreal, the absurdist, you know, you would have this like, yeah, it would, it would be really cool if in the end he somehow morphed into the beast. Like on this, this two page spread, like instead of the head being backwards, like we're, we're looking behind him at the crowd. Like if, like if some, he had some aspect of the beast that like only we could see as the reader and the crowd yeah. couldn't see, like we would be like, Oh, we're, we're on something that, you know, these, these people in the audience aren't, aren't able to see. Yeah something that would have made more sense. But I do love this page. I love how uh, it's interesting that like, you know, he's Xeroxed, his face is Xeroxed, but the background changes, it looks like. Or is it the same background each time? No, it's different. Like it's painted, the same scenes painted over and over again, which is really interesting, I think. Yeah, and I like the acting too, you know, yes. the sort of panel to panel kind of, you know, I, I think it's, you know, he may maybe um, it's easy to overlook how yeah. how well he makes his characters act because everything is just so kind of beautifully painted. But just as yeah. a as a um, you know just from a composition standpoint or just basic drawing standpoint, I really like how how he's making the characters act and their gestures. 
Yeah, there's a very, yeah, he, he gets sort of the energy of the character out through their poses really well. They don't feel, they don't feel like static images ever. Yeah. Like there's a lot of movement in his, in his stuff, which a lot of artists sort of have that issue with, you know, making your characters too stiff and lifeless. Well, yeah, I, I feel like some, like I, I, some bad reviews uh, I've read about his stuff get sometimes um, criticized in Kevich of that or like stiffness or whatever, mm. or, but you know, like he, clearly knows what he's doing <laughs> yeah yeah there's a yeah like there's a lot of each character moves differently than the other character they're not all draw, drawn the same way um yeah there's a lot of thought put into the art <sighs> okay move on before we go down that rabbit hole again but um but even like right here i love this this is a spread and i kind of wanted to talk about it as one image because it does sort of lead into each other really naturally mm -hmm. um but Electra is posed differently than Ken Wind is, you know, like her movements, her posture is different from Garrett's, different from Chastity, different from Nick Fury. There's a lot of thought and acting, like you said, put into these characters to mm -hmm. give them life. And, uh, but I did want to sort of break down an action page as well, because like I, another thing I was so surprised reading this book was how many action sequences are in this book mm -hmm. and how well they move. Um, especially in issue four, that whole sequence with Garrett running away from the agents after that sequence that we just broke down with Ken Wind, like how well that moves, you know, like the, the action is done really well in these books, I think. Yeah. And th there's one particular sequence um, that I, that I loved um, for, for the way it was um, choreographed, mostly the style of it. And I, cause I don't know that he did this in the rest of the book. I could probably pull it up where, um, it's a kind of a monochromatic scene, but um, the characters versus Electra are like they're, they're rendered. I, I found it rendered differently, where the characters are in this kind of monochromatic, kind of purplish line. And the, and the first issue, I think it's somewhere towards the end. Oh, towards the end, you see that where like, um, <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, when she's in the campaign office. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. really, really love. It doesn't really this style or this approach is, doesn't really happen in the in the um, other parts of the book. But I really love how he she's almost kind of cut out, even though you know there there are collage elements. But I think just stylistically, it's really cool. And they probably it's probably intentional they only use it for this one sequence because I'm sure it probably get old. <laughs> I, well, that's that's the thing about this book is that maybe at the end, because they kind of get a little repetitive with another helicopter chase and like, you know, some like rocket pack stuff, like in this sequence right here. But for the most part, there's a lot of memorable action sequences. I love this issue specifically because it goes from that like ridiculous underwater fight scene with the accountant ninjas. Mm -hmm. And then, then the shield agents come in and they have another underwater fight. But at that point, the colors change because they electrify the water. And uh, then it goes into this epic helicopter chase. And yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of memorable sequences in this book. There's a similar kind of helicopter shooting a gun at or from a helicopter also in Dark Knight. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> and it's, all, it's also kind of like a spread page where Batman is sort of shooting. Uh, yeah. Like some kind of grappling hook type thing, I think. Oh my gosh. Offer. Yeah. <laughs> you think who's ripping off who, ah, whatever. But yeah, you know, like, yeah. But I, I did love how this page was rendered. Um, it was very cool. And uh, I think that's the end of our, end of our breakdowns. Um, okay. But I, I think 
I think the consensus of this review is that like, at least Google the images so you can see how beautiful they're rendered. <laughs> yeah, like I, I do, um, I, I think I, I might not necessarily appreciate it more, but I think it'll give me even more context if I get to check out um, Daredevil Love and War. Because yeah. by all indications, it seems like, like, because I think you mentioned that it kind of gave them leeway to do this. So from what I've seen, yeah. it does seem more straightforward. And I feel like maybe, maybe on a certain level, I might actually appreciate this more after reading that, even just on a kind of theoretical level. Because, um, yeah, I, it, might, it might actually touch, up, touch upon all those things that frustrated, frustrated me about this. You know, that if it is actually more straightforward, that I'll, I would have more of a sort of emotional reaction to that. And I, and I know that uh, stylistically, it's really funny because the depiction of the Kingpin in that ended up in the Spider-Man, the Spider-Verse movie, which is really yeah. funny that something so almost kind of outsider art would <laughs> be incorporated in this huge mainstream Ooh. movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's, uh, and I think that was Shooter's call to sort of put um, Daredevil Love and War into the epic line. Because I think I think at that point that they had just sort of dabbled with that sort of uh, that that publishing group, I guess, or that that offshoot of Marvel, mm -hmm. and uh, they wanted Love and War to be a part of the regular Daredevil continuity, but they sent they showed it to Shooter, and Shooter was like, "No, this is too weird, but it's good. We should just put it out of continuity and into this sort of like graphic novel printed run." And I think. And it might be, and I might be getting it mixed up with Electra. You'll have to watch the. I, I really recommend the the kayfabe interview because they go into detail about that, and it's really great. And then also, Bill Sienkiewicz has a YouTube channel where he talks about it as well. It's awesome stuff. He goes into it, and and it's pretty great. I have a question. Um, in in your book, did the ending uh, or the afterward or whatever, did it have the message here from Frank Miller? It said, uh, "For Jim and Tammy Baker." Who saved us the trouble? Did it say that in your book? No, I only I read it in singles. What about I, you, Matt? I have the I have the the, the paperback trade. Um, no, I do not have that. That's yeah. interesting. I wanted to get your opinion on that because I'm yeah. a little confused about it. Who are who's Jim and Tammy Baker? There are these televangelists who um, in the '80s where they they ran to some there's a huge controversy where they're basically caught grifting their, um, their followers. Okay. Uh, I forget the exact details, but it was a big deal back then. Yeah. Cause I think they had gotten, however, like they ended up, you know, they were found out to be living extravag extravagantly from, you know, the, whatever, probably millions of dollars they had gotten from, I guess, uh, these suckers. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's all I remember. And, and, and Tammy Faye Baker in particular became kind of iconic in the 80s because I think they, they issued like sort of this uh, televised apology, you know, I think during or after the controversy. And in that, in that apology, you know, she, she was always um, really extravagantly dressed and always had a ton of makeup. But in this apology she was crying and her like eye, dark eyeliner was just running down her face and just became this sort of iconic thing to 
make fun of in the 80s. That's yeah. where that comes from. I mean, I know the name now, Tammy Faye Baker. I, I've, I've yeah. heard of that. I've heard that name before. So that's interesting. They're, they became like these sort of iconic sort of embodiment of like, you know, religious grifting. Another mm-hmm. level of confusion then added to this book. Like, yeah, because it it's, it's very succinct, like for saving us the trouble, like what does, I don't know. I didn't think too much about it, but it, it's definitely kind of a head scratcher. Maybe it has to do with public figures being liars. I don't know. Like it's, yeah. It's saving us the trouble from what? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, of, of showing us it's all a farce or it's all phony. Like, <laughs> I, don't yeah. I don't know. Because this book, if anything, it, it, it's, it doesn't deny or confirm like the existence of something spiritual either. Like the, again, this book has nothing to say. So it's, it, it's, yeah, it's weird that that's at the end of that book. Definitely. Yeah. I, yeah. So, all right. So let's, uh, uh, I think, I think we're, we're going to wind it up here. Um, I will, I'll, I'll start us off. Uh, so I have a unique perspective, uh, in that, uh, I read current Frank Miller, knowing that it's going to be a train wreck, just to just to, just to show up and 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 see how it's how crazy it's going to get. So I also knew that I was getting something crazy, and I was just here for for the train wreck. So 86, 86 Frank Frank Miller in two thousand nineteen, two thousand twenty Frank Miller. I'm I'm in just to just for the for the train wreck and see see what craziness is going to happen. So true. Oh, it's so true. And Jeremy, what are, what are your closing thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the good thing about um, revisiting, revisiting the sort of Frank Miller Electra era is um, me rediscovering just his initial run, which was just so special to me. I, th- mm-hmm. I think I was at the perfect age. Uh, you know, I was probably... Um, you know, anywhere between eight years old to 12, like when I really got into that original run, like his like late seventies, early eighties run. And that stuff, I think, I think when you're like kind of a kid or pre-adolescent and in, in the context of what superhero comics were back then, it just stands on its own. There's just like nothing cooler. And it's just, um, it was great. And, and there's something romantic about it in terms of like him being this sort of young upstart. And I know he kind of shared a studio with like Walt Simonson, these other really great Marvel guys like in New York. And I just like kind of imagine that it just seems super cool. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just loved all this. And, and I read it now and it, it holds up on that kind of, um, I don't want to say primitive level, but like just, you know, being ahead of the curve, um, for his time, like for where he was as an artist and for where superhero comics were. I think it's just a fascinating uh, document. And I think if you read that stuff and then you check out something as sort of bonkers as what he tried with Electro Assassin, you could kind of respect the sort of audacity and balls to the wall kind of just see what sticks kind of thing. I think just on that theoretical level, it's kind of cool, even though as an actual comic on its own, it doesn't work for me, but, it's great to revisit those old uh his his original daredevil run just for you know the the coolness of it and um especially if you're if you're fortunate enough to read like the actual physical issues 
which I still have like a few in storage and it's great to kind of read the old pulpy pages of it because mm -hmm. you get like a collection. It's just not the same. There's something really special about holding those kind of old newsprinty kind of pulp aspect of it, which especially for the kind of stories he was telling, it worked so well for that specific uh, medium. It, it feels like a, like a, like an, like an old pulpy document. It, it's, it's, rambling but anyway <laughs> that was the no, best part great. for me is to, no, to no. revisit that that classic stuff yeah i think we i think matt and i can both sort of agree with you on that that this sort of again like the book recontextualized itself it recontextualizes frank miller's work especially at the time that this was around the time he was doing dark knight returns this is the time well, a little bit before he does year one which is so, like the exact opposite of this book you know yeah. that book might be my favorite by him writing wise like it's so self-contained and subdued and it's one that i actually have revisited more than even dark knight returns because I, it's I, I, gotta just, I gotta check that out again your one is just it's it's beautifully written it's mm -hmm. and it's so heartwarming and human and uh heartwarming in a dark way but it like it has darkness to it but it doesn't have like this like nihilism and like pessimism that this book sort of has that mm -hmm. like there's just sort of this there's no hope with this book but like with year one there's this there's this like sense of redemption and like trying to better yourself in that book and like i i love that frank miller and even like it's sort of weird that like his sin city books especially the early ones sort of have a lot of those themes as well mm -hmm. of like redeeming yourself and um yeah, it's it sort of, it, it helps me to remind me my, me of like why I love Frank Miller and then sort of like why why he was good when he was good. Like, you know, because like Dark Knight Returns as dark as it gets, there's always this element of hope to it. Even 300 as like angry and like overly masculine that book is, there's this element of hope to it at the end where it's like, we have these guys who sacrifice themselves so that we could live free you know like that 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 sort of moral of the story is really nice uh so yeah it's it's good to sort of revisit to think about this book and all the themes he was trying out and then how he did all those better in other books like it was i think that's sort of my takeaway on a positive level from this book yeah um, and i think i think in revisiting a lot of his stuff i think uh the tricky thing or the thing that i'm finding out rereading his classic stuff or my favorites of his is that um I feel like people uh, fell into a trap of trying to do what he did, but yeah. badly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so well, I think, yeah. yeah. Contextually, it, it's important to sort of see what he was doing, you know, in the context of the times, uh, because it just makes you appreciate it that much more. Even though a lot of it works by itself, of course, but um, I appreciate it a lot more when I see what was around him and, and sort of, uh, it's interesting to see the, the, positive and negative ways he influenced a lot of his peers and all the other people that would follow him. So true. Yeah, there's there. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to bring that up during the, during the review, but there's, yeah, there's definitely some clear things in this book that were imitated in other books by other artists later on. And he might be the reluctant father of the uh, so-called grim dark thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, Jeremy, I'd like to, to thank you again for, for being on. Um, do you want to let folks know where they can uh, find you online? Oh, uh, yeah. Just um, I'm on Instagram at just Arangulo, my last name, and uh, 
my comics are at jeremyrambolo.com and thanks for having me again it's great to chat with you guys again it's yeah, awesome we, we had a great time yeah we'll we'll link to we'll link to your social media in our our show notes if you could give us a rating and review on whatever podcasting service you, you you're using we'd really appreciate it if you want to follow the podcast we're on twitter at construct com pod instagram constructing comics pod facebook and youtube constructing comics and uh just like to thank everybody for joining us everybody be safe and go out there and uh make some comics thank you